Good morning. My name is Katie. The Old Testament uh, scripture is found today in Psalm 40, 5 through 10. You, Lord my God, you've done so many things. Your wonderful deeds and your plans for us, no one can compare with you. If I were to proclaim and talk about all of them, they would be too numerous to count. You don't relish sacrifices or offerings. You don't require entirely burned offerings or compensation offerings, but you have given me ears. So I said, here I come. I'm inscribed in the written scroll. I want to do your will, my God. Your instruction is deep within me. I've told the good news of your righteousness in the great assembly. I didn't hold anything back, as you well know, Lord. I didn't keep your righteousness only to myself. I declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I didn't hide your loyal love and trustworthiness from the great assembly. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Catherine, and the New Testament reading is found in Romans 14, 7 through 9. We don't live for ourselves, and we don't die for ourselves. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to God. This is why Christ died and lived, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. The word of the Lord. My name is Wanda. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Then Jesus began to teach his disciple. The human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and legal experts, and be killed. Then in three days rise again from the dead. He said this plainly, but Peter took hold of Jesus and scolding him began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, then sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. All who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. Why would people gain, whole, gain the whole world but lose their lives? What would people give in exchange for their lives? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this unfaithful and sinful generation, the human one will be ashamed of that person when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Father, we want to think your thoughts after you. Would you help us today as we look at your scriptures, as we read from your words, to think God thoughts. And would you help us by your spirit to say yes to your invitation, to come follow you, to take up our cross, to live our lives in the way and the manner of Jesus. Help us today in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Jason Jackson. I serve as the associate pastor here at New Life Downtown. If you're new or newer or visiting today, thanks for being with us. If you're watching online, good to see you digitally, and hopefully we'll see you physically at some point in the future. I grew up in a small town in north central Iowa, and a town of like you know, not quite 3,000 people. I think that was family reunion weekend when we had that many in town. And in elementary school, I remember kind of every year we'd have to get 
a new composition journal for our language arts, our English class. You know that black journal that you know you kind of have to write in, and we've been given all these exercises to you know write today, like who's the person you admire the most, or what do you want to be when you grow up, or what are your plans for summer vacation? And so we'd write in these things all year, and at the end of the year, somebody had the bright idea, I can't remember when or who or how, but to take these journals and have every, like pass them around to everybody in your grade and have everybody write in them, sort of like you do in high school with yearbooks, but we were doing this in elementary school with these journals. And I remember just feeling like a lot of pressure about having to write in other people's journals. Like, what do you say? Like, the journal comes by, you look at it, and you're like, oh, like, we don't get along. <laughs> what should I say? See you next year, because I don't want to see you over the summer. Uh, so you're just like, see you next year, bye. Or if the journal comes by and it's the girl you like, like, oh, now what do I say? Like, do I, be, do I go the funny route? Like, so that my, like, entry is the funniest one? And she's like, oh, yeah, 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 that, that, that was good. And then I got to read everybody else's to see if theirs is funnier. You know, it's like this pressure. Or do you say, like, hey, hope to see you at the pool on Tuesday afternoons this summer. You know, like, just as a hint of saying, like, hey, I'd like to see you. Because, you know, it's fifth grade and I don't know how else to ask except for to write it inside of here. And feeling sort of all of this, you know, pressure about what do we do. And I think that pressure, like, built by the time you end up in high school and you're signing each other's senior yearbooks. You know, and sort of like, ah, everybody's going their separate ways now. I don't know you know, what summer will hold or what happens when everybody goes to all these different states and goes to school. And so what do you say? Especially kind of in those moments, what do you say to your friends? What do you say to the people that mean the most to you? What are you going to write as far as, yeah, like, thank you? Because it may be 20 years from now, they find this book in a box and read it again. And so just in case, I want to say something significant. And I think we find a little bit of that in Paul's letters. That as Paul is writing letters to churches, he's thinking about what I really want to say, uh, especially if he's writing from prison and facing the fact that this may be the last letter he writes. What do I say to these people? What, what do I say to them? And there's something about his letters that reveals something about Paul, something about his circumstances, something about what he's going through, and something about his desires, what he really hopes to be true. I hope to see you this afternoon, you know, kind of letters. And it reveals something about the people he's writing to, who they are, what they're going through, what his hopes and desires are for them, and what their relationship is like. Well, today we're in the third week in a series through one of Paul's letters. Most of this fall, we're going to be walking through the letter of Philippians. It's a letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi, a church that he actually helped start. The church started around 50 AD, and at the time Paul is writing, it's meeting in the house of Lydia. Lydia is this wealthy businesswoman who's probably the first convert to Christianity in Europe. And she falls in love with Jesus and says, hey, I want to open up my home and I want to help financially support the movement of the gospel in this area. And so this group of people starts to gather in Lydia's home. And Paul is writing to them probably somewhere between five and seven years later. He's writing to them from prison. He's now locked up most likely in Ephesus, maybe in Rome or some other place, but Ephesus seems to be the best sort of theory around where he is. It's the mid-50s, and he's writing as he's facing 
what could be his inevitable death. He's going to go from prison to trial where he'll either be released or he's going to be killed. And so now he's writing to these people with this on his mind. And as we read the letter, he's writing with this incredible amount of affection and joy. That's why we're calling this series Complete Joy, because throughout this letter, here's Paul in prison rejoicing over and over and over and over again. And this affection and joy come out of the fact he knows these people. He's not writing to strangers. He's writing to his friends. He's writing to what Pastor Glenn talked about in our first week of the series, his kingdom companions, those who are in this thing with him. So he's writing with such affection and with joy about what's happening in their life and the ways that they've supported him. And so the way the letter goes is he starts out and he greets them. He gives thanks. He lets them know, hey, I'm praying for you. He tells them the content of his prayers. That's what Pastor Glenn talked about last week. He's praying that their love would grow more rich in knowledge and insight. If you missed that sermon, I take a look at it in the podcast. It was fantastic. Now, in this part of the letter that we're going to look at today, he starts discussing the present circumstances, what he's going through, what they're going through, and what that means. And what we find as we read these words is it actually reveals Paul's desires. It's sort of in the midst of it says, yeah, this is what I'm passionate about. This is what I'm hopeful for. This is really what I want to see happen. And so today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. If you have a Bible, you can follow along there, or you can just watch on the screen here. So it starts this way. He says this, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me have actually advanced the gospel. The whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else knows that I'm in prison for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters now have more confidence through the Lord to speak the word boldly and bravely because of my jail time. Now, some certainly preach Christ with jealous and competitive motives, but others preach Christ with good motives. They're motivated by love because they know that I'm here to give a defense of the gospel. The others preach Christ because of their selfish ambition. They're insincere and hoping to cause me pain while I'm in prison. What do I really think about this? Just this. Since Christ is proclaimed in every possible way, whether from dishonest or true motives, I'm glad. I'm rejoicing, and I'll continue to be glad. Paul, in the middle of this situation that he finds himself in, in the situation he sees the church in, celebrates how his circumstances and theirs have led to the advancement of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. He says, man, me being here in this prison has given me a chance to share with the whole Praetorian Guard, which is kind of like if you've seen Return of the Jedi, when Luke comes into the emperor's sort of place, it's those guys in the red suits. They're like, who are those guys? But they look yeah, like they know what they're doing. Or for maybe a more close context, like the Secret Service. It's this whole sort of legion of the army uh, in Rome that was raised up to protect the emperor, but then got sent out on all these other missions. And so here they are at this 
prison and Paul's like, I'm getting to share with them and I'm getting to share with everybody else that I'm coming into contact here. The other prisoners and the other people that are in and around, I'm getting a chance in the midst of this to tell all these people about Jesus that I probably wouldn't have had a chance to if I weren't here. And not only that, but because I'm here, some of the other followers of Jesus are now emboldened. They're like, you know what? If Paul's in prison and he's doing all right, I'm going to share about Jesus as well. And that was not without its problems. I mean, there are people doing it for right reasons and wrong reasons and all of those things. But Paul's like, yes, look at this. What has happened in the middle of all these things is that the gospel has advanced. Paul rejoices that Christ is proclaimed in every way, in every possible way. He wants to see the gospel go forth. This is his sort of passion, and it's our commission. It's the very thing we're called into. I think the first thing Paul wants us to know is he wants to let the gospel be spread through us. Let the gospel be spread through you, through me, through us. In our Old Testament reading today, we saw that the psalmist is talking about all of the things that God has done. Oh, they're too numerous for me. It's like, there's all of these things that I can just celebrate and rejoice in, your goodness and your righteousness and your love and your truth. And he says, and I haven't held back the good news. I've shared it. I didn't hide it from the assembly. I didn't keep it to myself. I didn't tuck it away somewhere. I didn't shy away from talking about it. No, I proclaimed your good news in the assembly. This is the real nature of good news. If we believe that something is really good news, then we want to share it. Think about this like maybe a good example is Mac users, right? There's a new like Apple keynote coming up and they're going to announce new products and every Mac user is going to have this new sort of fire of evangelism in their bones to talk to everybody who uses any Android or PC device and say, you know what, it's time for you to switch. You, I've got good news for you. There are products that don't fail and you need to come over here. And yes, it's going to cost you a little bit more than you want to pay, but it's going to be great. And you can just come on over, like come. And it's just natural and like passionate about this. Or you think about when the news broke that In-N-Out Burger is coming to Colorado Springs. Like all of the In-N-Out Burger fans like just came rushing out into public. I've got good news of great joy. <laughs> double, double with cheese, animal style. It will change your life. Like it's a cheeseburger. I know, but you've never had this cheeseburger before, and you have to know. You have to go. You have to try it. We do this so naturally with so many things, and yet when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Jesus, it seems to be increasingly difficult for us to share the good news. There's something about the practice of sharing faith it seems to have sort of the bottom of falling out of it in our day. Alpha, our Alpha USA recently commissioned the Barna Group to do uh, a study, a report on evangelism. They published their findings in this book called Reviving Evangelism. And what they found was that across generations, so across millennials and Gen Xers and boomers, across all of them, 
They, 94 to 97% said that knowing Jesus is the best thing that could happen to somebody. I don't know why it's not 100%, but like 95% of so Christians think Jesus is the best thing that could happen to somebody. So it's a, it's a start. And then in addition to that, 95 to 97% said sharing faith is actually a core part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Like talking about him, sharing the gospel, evangelism is part of what it means to be a Christian. And yet then what they went down and found was that 50% of millennials, 25% of Gen Xers, and 20% of boomers said that they believe that it is somewhat wrong to share the gospel with the hopes of converting somebody. Like, well, wait a minute. Like, almost 100% believe that Jesus is the best possible thing that could happen to somebody. That Jesus is the greatest news the world has ever known. And almost 100% say, yeah, and part of what it means to know Jesus is to tell other people about Jesus. But then a large percent of us are like, yeah, but I feel really conflicted about that. I'm just not sure. And I think where we find ourselves is in this place where we feel caught between Jesus's words and our world. We know, like Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. This good news, go and share it. Tell about it, proclaim it. Go and talk about me in all places, at all times, in all ways, in every possible way, proclaim Christ. And yet our world says, no, just believe and let other people believe. Like you, you have your beliefs over here and they have their beliefs over here. And if you guys want to talk about the differences between those, like that's great, but like that's where it needs to stop. And so we find ourselves conflicted in the middle. It's like, well, what, what do we do when we have this sort of sense of Jesus commissioning us and our culture saying, yeah, 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 I know you should pull back in the middle of that. Here's what I'd like to suggest, just two things this morning as it relates to this point. First of all, the thing Jesus is calling us as the people of God to be brave, but not abrasive. To be brave, but not abrasive. In previous generations, maybe even like 15, 20 years ago, it seemed like there was a lot of emphasis on gospel sharing, a lot of emphasis on evangelism, where there was evangelism training and evangelism books and evangelism programs and strategies and, you know, like, hey, here's, you know, do this and do that, and lots of resources. And the followers of Jesus, I think, were quite brave. Say so like, oh, I feel equipped. I've got these tools. I feel encouraged. I'm going to go out and I'm going to share. But at times, the tactics were less than ideal. <laughs> they were a little bit abrasive. Think of the example of just like the person standing with the bullhorn outside of like a rock concert. Like, I'm not sure this is the best way to tell people about Jesus. Like, they're on their way to go see this band, and the bullhorn just isn't really capturing their imagination at this point. Or maybe the worst one was the, like, the tip tracks like the tracks that looked like $20 bills, uh, but weren't. And so like the encouragement was, hey, on Sunday after church, when you go out to eat, instead of leaving a tip, leave this. And so then the servers would come by like, whoa, they left me at 20, this is amazing, and then pick it up. And then there's the gospel presentation inside. I don't think that makes anyone interested in Jesus at all. They're like, where's my 20? Like servers hate serving on Sunday afternoons. 
Like, oh, church is out. I don't want to go to work today. It shouldn't be that way. And oftentimes what happened in some of our approaches is they were just all one-sided. Like, let me just tell you, not listen to you, not know you, not have a conversation with you. Let me just tell. It was one-sided. And we often resorted to fear tactics. We talked way more about hell than we talked about Jesus. It's like, oh, this is, you know, this will kind of tip the hand in our favor. This will just scare people into the kingdom. As opposed to like, no, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Right? It's his love. It's his mercy. And so don't do that. <laughs> but be brave. Be bold. Tell people about Jesus. Tell people about the way that Jesus has changed your life. Naturally, passionately, like you would about anything else. Like, say, like, listen, I want to tell you. I am a follower of Jesus. I was here, and then Jesus showed me this, and Jesus taught me this, and I'm being challenged by this, and I'm wrestling with this, and I'm trying to figure out what this means. We can share honestly and respectfully and with grace, but honestly and boldly and share. And don't just share with strangers on planes, but like the people you know. That all throughout the research it shows the gospel spreads most naturally and effectively through social networks, not through just like going up to somebody you never met before and engaging in a one kind of sided conversation, but amongst coworkers and neighbors and friends and family and saying, I want to continue to just tell you about Jesus and what he's doing in my life because it's good news and I want to share it. So be bold but not abrasive. The second thing I would say when we think about sharing our faith is to be broad and not abridged. Oftentimes what happens in gospel presentations when we're talking about Jesus is that they sort of become overly reductionistic, become reduced and simplified, and so that the gospel becomes simply about personal forgiveness and personal salvation. That's part of the gospel, That's part of the good news about what Jesus has come to do, but it's not all of it. It's part of it, and maybe the most sort of like compelling part for a lot of people, but not for everybody. There is something about that, but there is so much more. Pastor Glenn sometimes uses this analogy of imagining that somebody brought the Mona Lisa in and sort of went around to everyone and said, what do you find to be the best part of this painting? Like, what do you love the most? What's the most compelling part for you? And people said, oh, her smile, that weird, you know, thing. Um, and, there, and then an art curator said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to frame the Mona Lisa in such a way that all you see is the smile. And you can't see the background, and you can't see your face, and you can't see the color and the texture and the nuance. You just see the smile. I think sometimes that's what we do with the gospel. We have a more beautiful story to tell. We have so much more to say. There is so much to say. Robert Weber, who used to teach at Wheaton College, said one time, somebody came up to him and said, hey, Dr. Weber, could you share the gospel with me? And he said, do you have an hour? I mean, not five minutes, but do you have an hour so I can tell you about the God of the universe who created the entire world and created it good and beautiful and the God who loves the world that he created so much that he wants to redeem and restore and make everything new and right and good again. 
Yeah, it's even the God who has so much grace for people. He says, I want you to be a part of what it is that I'm doing. I want to invite you in. So Abraham, come. Isaac, come. Jacob, come. Israel, come. Here's Jesus. Everybody, come. Get in on this. The God who says, I made you in my image, in my likeness, who made you in the very, very image of God, that you are loved and valuable and unique, and you display the very character of God in the world. Let me tell you about that God who wants to help all of that come out to be fully human and fully alive and to live in such a way that your life is filled with profound joy and peace. Let me tell you about the God who loves the the widow and the orphan and the poor and the marginalized. Let me tell you about the God who wants to establish justice on the earth and has commissioned his whole church to say, how can we get in on this thing that God wants to do to redeem everything? Let me tell you about that God. Let me tell you about the person of Jesus. Let me tell you about the work of the Holy Spirit and how he's changed me from the inside out, how I used to be so angry, but now I find myself loving people that I didn't want to eat with before. Let me tell you about how I've experienced forgiveness and how I've learned to extend forgiveness. Let me tell you the story, the big story, and my story. Tell it all. Don't just narrow it down, but tell the big and beautiful story of God, the God who wants to reconcile and restore all things. See what happens. That's what we have to tell. The gospel spread through you. The second thing Paul goes on, he says this. He says, I'm glad because I know that this will result in my release through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It is my expectation and hope that I won't be put to shame in anything. Rather, I hope with daring courage that Christ's greatness will be seen in my body now as always, whether I live or I die. Because for me, living serves Christ and dying is even better. Other translations say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I continue to live in the world, then I'll get results for my work, but I don't know what I prefer. I'm actually torn between the two because I want to leave this life and be with Christ, which is far better, However, it's more important for me to stay in this world for your sake. So I'm sure of this. I will stay alive and remain with you all to help you progress and to help your progress and the joy of your faith and to increase your pride in Christ Jesus through my presence when I visit you again. As I said before, Paul's waiting trial and he knows that this is what's going to happen. He's either going to live or he's going to die. Is he going to be released or he's going to be executed? He's confident that he's going to be released, but he recognizes the possibility of death. It's there. And he finds himself sort of torn, which is better in the middle of this. If he lives, he'll continue to serve Jesus, which will benefit the Philippians. If he dies, he'll gain Christ. He'll be with Jesus is the language he used. This is actually how the New Testament primarily talks about the time between death and resurrection. Talks about the person, not a place. Talks about being with Jesus. That this is what's going to happen. We will be with him. We'll have some sort of intensified experience of communion with the one true God. But either way for Paul, whether he's looking at life or he's looking at death, what he sees is Jesus. 
It's Jesus. If I live, it's Jesus. If I die, it's Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, it's all Jesus for Paul. One just happens to be more of Jesus sooner than the other one, being with him. Our New Testament reading is uh, Paul writing to the church in Rome, and he says it this way there. He says, Whether I li- if I live, I live for the Lord. If I die, I die for the Lord. And this is what my whole life is about. And Paul's example is actually our invitation. The invitation to let Jesus be the aim in our lives and the gain in our death. To let Jesus be the aim of our life and our gain in death. Oftentimes when you're talking to someone and say like, okay, what's your goal? What's your aim? Like, what are you going for? Like, what's the life plan? Like, okay, here it is. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get this degree. And then that degree is going to get me this like job at this, you know, sort of place over here. And I'm going to take the skills that I've got there. I'm going to use it to start my own thing. And then I'm going to have this startup company and it's going to explode. And I'm going to, you know, do this. And I'm going to, uh, you know, like generate all of this wealth. And then I'm going to be able to retire early and like travel the world and go golfing. And it's going to be fantastic. Oh, and then I'll write some books too, because I'll be famous for how well my startup did. Like, this is my plan. I'm going to do it. It's like, that's awesome. Great. Where's Jesus in the middle of that? Because oftentimes it's like, well, you know, and then like, I just kind of sprinkle some Jesus on top in the middle of that. Like, ask him to bless my stuff. Or maybe I have like a little side of Jesus over here. If things don't go so well, then maybe I'll pray. Or maybe like, I'm just when I want Jesus for dessert. Like, once I'm done with all of that, then I'll get serious about my faith. Like, when I'm retired, then I'll, like, volunteer. I remember being in college, and I had some conversations with some other college guys who, at our Christian school, were just, like, what are you doing here? Like, you clearly don't want to be at a Christian school the way that you're living right now. Like, what? Why are you here? And they're like, well, this is the only school my parents would pay for. <laughs> like, okay. So then, like, what are you doing? It's like, well, listen, I'm going to get serious about the Jesus thing later. But right now, while I'm young and I'm not married, I don't have kids, I'm just going to party a lot. And then later on, like when I need to, then I'll get serious about Jesus. But right now, my aim is something else. Last week, Pastor Glenn said that the invitation of knowledge and insight is to rethink everything in light of Jesus. I think we can say here that call of discipleship is to rearrange or reorient everything around Jesus. They we approach everything in our lives through the lens of serving Jesus. That this is the lens for Christians. Our primary aim is not to grow a business and gain a fortune and, you know, become famous and retire early and be a scratch golfer. Like that's not the aim. The aim for us is to serve Jesus. And so it's like, well, what are you doing? What's your aim right now? So I'm serving Jesus. I'm trying to figure out how to do that with this business. Started this business. I'm trying to think, how does this business serve Jesus? How do I serve Jesus and take care of my clients and customers and my employees? How do I serve Jesus with whatever wealth is generated from this? How do I serve Jesus with this thing, with these gifts and talents? Or maybe you're at home with kids and you're like, oh, I'm just, I'm parenting right now. My aim is like to get kids out of the house. But maybe the aim is actually, no, I'm serving Jesus right now. I'm trying to figure out how to do that with these little people um, that just, you know, kind of keep messing up all my plans and stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm serving Jesus here. We got this friendship group, like what's the aim? It's like, we're just having fun. 
Well, no, the aim is like, how do I serve Jesus by loving these friends and loving them well? The, the goal for us is to serve Jesus so at the end of our lives, we might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter my rest. That's our gain. It's not accumulating all of these other things in life, saying I want to gain all these experiences and I want to gain this reputation and I want to gain this following and I want to gain this opportunity. I want to gain this wealth. And then, you know, just at the end of the day, look, look at all this stuff. Jesus says it's possible to gain the whole world and lose your soul. It's possible. But he says, aim for me, gain me. This is the gain. It's Jesus, the person of Christ himself, who one day will say to us, well done. Good and faithful servant, come and enter your rest. Come and be with me. Third sort of section of what Paul says here, he says, most important, he says, live together. Live together in a manner worthy of Christ's gospel. Do this whether I come and see you or I'm absent and just hear about you. Do this so that you stand firm, united in one spirit and mind as you struggle together to remain faithful to the gospel. That way, you won't be afraid of anything your enemies do. Instead, your faithfulness and your courage will be a sign of their coming destruction and your salvation, which is from God. God has generously granted you the privilege of not only believing in Christ, but also suffering for Christ's sake. You are having the same struggle you saw me face and now hear that I'm still facing. See, Paul says, he says, no matter what happens to me, when I'm in prison for a long time, I come see you now, I come see you later, or I never see you again. And no matter what happens, Paul implores the Philippians to live together in unity. He says, live together. So they're going to face struggle. They're going to face opposition. And what happens when we face struggle or opposition in life is it begins to create fractions and divisions. It can cause people to say like, you know, I'm just kind of done with this place. I'm done with these people. And at times to say, I'm done with Jesus. It can create fractions and divisions and cause people to leave the church or leave the faith, to break away from the family of God and at times to break away from God himself. And Paul says that he wants for us and the Philippians to not go that way, but to let our life together match the message. To live a life worthy of the gospel, to let our life match the message. A part of the message of the gospel is this. Paul talks about this in Ephesians. He says, Christ is our peace, and he has reconciled us to him and to one another. So there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, male and female, but all have been brought together in Christ. He's removed the divisions and reconciled us to God and to one another in himself. And what happens is when divisions reemerge, our life together no longer matches the message. It's no longer the message of, oh, we're all the people who have no business being together if it weren't for Jesus. We wouldn't even want to be together if it weren't for Jesus. And we wouldn't know how to be together if it weren't for Jesus. Now it's like, oh yeah, we decided we really don't want to be together and we're not going to try anymore. And all of a sudden, it doesn't match the message at all. 
I think what threatens to divide us today is actually not all that different from what threatened to divide the Philippians in Paul's day. Things like race, and economics, and politics, gender, and marital status, and more and more and more and more. And what happens is, is when we place our differences with one another greater than our allegiance to Christ in one another. And we say, yeah, actually, we're going to say that the differences matter more now than the fact that we've all been brought together in Jesus. We're going to make this thing more important than that. Paul says, don't do that. Contend for unity of mind and spirit, not a false peace where we just like pretend everything's okay, and not the elimination of diversity where we suddenly we just become sort of like a homogenous group of robots that, you know, don't have thoughts ourselves. Like, no, not that, but contend for one another, contend for the faith, strive together, serve one another, encourage one another, be in this together so that you might be faithful to the gospel. You might be faithful to Jesus. Help one another be faithful to Jesus. Encourage one another to do that. And then our life matches the message that yes, we have been brought together in Christ. What's happening, I think, in our culture today a little bit is that there's a common sort of assumption or a common sort of conversation that church is sort of optional or unnecessary, right? Church is for like, uh, maybe when I feel like I really need something or maybe for like the, like super Christians or something, but church is just kind of a side thing. In a conversation with somebody one day, they said, yeah, I'm just not really very religious about church. And the first thing I thought in my mind is, I wonder how my wife would respond if I said, I'm just not really religious about family and this whole like marriage thing. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to get up in the morning and leave before the kids get up. And I'm going to come home at night, like after the kids are in bed. And then I would prefer just to like watch Netflix or baseball. Is that cool? Because I'm just not really very religious about this whole family thing. Jesus is for family. But this is who we are. We've been brought together, brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm just not really that religious about that. I think in some way it's like saying, like, I'm just not really religious about breathing or eating or drinking. They're essential to life. Like you have to breathe to live. And for Paul and the writers of the New Testament, it's like, you can't follow Jesus by yourself. Like, that doesn't work. Like, most of the New Testament makes no sense if there's not this. If it's not people trying to figure out, okay, now how do we live together in the midst of all of our stuff? How does our life match the message that God has reconciled him to himself and to one another? We're family. The church is the community of people that have been brought together in Jesus. And it's as essential to faith as breathing is to life. That's what the church is. It's a something that we're a part of and something that we need. This is what it means when Paul says, live your life together in a manner worthy of the gospel. So I want to encourage you this morning, if this is your family, if New Life Downtown is your family, it's the people that God has placed you with for this time while you're here, what does it look like for you to take a step into that? To say, you know, I'm going to start to live like this is my family. Maybe it's just saying like, I'm going to take a step toward consistency. Like, I'm just going to try to show up. That might feel like a big step right now. Take that step. Maybe it's like, 
I want to take a step toward sacrificial giving. Like, I'm just, I'm going to take that step and say, you know, this is my family and I want to be a part of what's going on here. Maybe it's a step toward, okay, I'm actually going to be open during that whole pass the peace time to like say hi to people <laughs> and get to know people's names and like, okay, I'm going to be a little bit open to like humans in the middle of this thing. And I'm just going to take a step there. Or maybe it's like, ah, I'm going to take a step toward a meal group. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to start to make relationships and friendships here. Or maybe today it's like, I want to take a step towards serving, like making sure that this thing is happening. So I'm going to join a team and I'm going to start showing up. And maybe I'd prefer not to, but you know what? This is my family, so I'm, I'm stepping in. I'm going to see what happens. This is why we do all of those things. And today as you leave, you'll have a chance. There'll be more meal groups and more teams out there to join in. Take that step if that's you. I don't know what it is, but just encourage you, let your life match the message. Take a step in. And it's a great reminder of that truth that we've been reconciled to God in Christ and reconciled to one another. That we have become family. I think this is why it's so beautiful that when Jesus was leaving, he gave us a meal to share. A meal that reminds us that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we've been brought into the family of God that we've been reconciled to him. But we don't come to the table by ourselves. It's not just like, oh, just me coming to share this meal. No, it's all of us coming to the table. Because when I showed up at the table that Jesus invited me to, I wasn't alone, but we were all there together. And so we lean in. We say yes to him. We let the gospel spread through us. We make Jesus our aim in life and our goal in death. And we desperately desire that our life together would match the message that other people might see it and go, yep, I want in. I want to be a part of that too. Pastor Glenn, would you lead us to the table this morning?